They said that if someone would develop a software program to automate pen register investigations, we think that that's something that's really needed in the law enforcement market. And I told him at the time, I have no idea what a pen register is. I don't know what law enforcement people do with pen registers, but I'm all about making software that people need that doesn't seem to exist. From Grindstone Media, this is Nebraska Made, a narrative journey through the lives of Nebraska's most inspiring business leaders. We unpack the intimate details of how our guests navigated obstacles and built their companies in pursuit of the good life. I'm JT Martin, and our guest today is Mike Merman, the founder of Penlink and Glacial Till Vineyard. Our guest today, Mike Merman, has done some pretty amazing things in his lifetime. He first founded an incredibly disruptive software company that aggregates law enforcement surveillance data. And now he's making the top-selling craft cider in the Omaha area. Two very different endeavors that both started right here in Nebraska. Well, I'm originally from Hastings, Nebraska. Actually, I was born in Wood River. Uh, so Scott Frost and myself are from Wood River, Nebraska. I like Hastings. It was, it was good for growing up and teenage years, but once I left home uh, to go to college, I never returned. What did you want to be back then? Well, when I was younger, I wanted to be a rock star, but <laughs> that, you know, that never happened. I didn't have the talent to be a rock star. You know, I don't know. I just knew that I wanted to go and make a difference. Uh, my mom would always, uh, my mom will say today that when I was a young kid, I would always tell her I was going to be a millionaire. So I don't know exactly what I was going to do, but I wanted to be successful and, and do something significant when I got older. What did you study at UNL? I was in business college. I started out as an accounting major. And after my freshman year uh, into my sophomore year, I took a test and I think I got a 40% on it. And I never went back to the class again. Um, <laughs> my dad always had a, a thing about college. My parents helped me with school, but if I got below a C, I had to pay for the uh, hours of the class. So I waited until Christmas time to come home and brought my girlfriend home at the time, which is now my wife, to break the news to my parents. I wasn't an accounting major anymore, and I know I need to pay for the class. So I changed majors, and I, uh, I went into just general business marketing. And then my junior year, I started working at a startup at that point in time called Selection Research. Uh, Selection Research ultimately became Gallup. Um, but at the time I was working there, it was Selection Research. So I started there in 1978. And then when I graduated from college in 79, I went to work for them full time. So after graduating college, Mike lands his first corporate job at Selection Research. It's a company that did survey research, personnel selection, management development, and general HR type work. Mike was the director of the Talent Center, in charge of recruiting and selection for various clients, but it wasn't long before he noticed that the corporate world just was not for him. Why did you end up uh, leaving? One reason is, uh, if you think back at what was going on in the early 80s, it was the beginning of kind of the PC revolution. I knew I didn't really have much of an opportunity to be pursuing 
software and software-related projects or businesses there. Um, and then the second uh, reason I left is a friend of mine had left Selection Research. And after he had left, I basically was fired and then rehired in the same day over what I would consider uh, political uh, reasons that they just did not like the fact that I was maintaining a relationship with him. So it was pretty much uh, brought to my attention that you have a choice. You can either work here or um, you can be friends with him. And so that pretty much opened my eyes to it doesn't really matter how good of a performer you are. If you just get on the wrong side of people, you could lose your job. And so I pledged to myself I would never get fired by anybody else again in my life. So it's, it's 83 right now, and you're into personal computers. Yep, yep. What, what was your inspiration? Um, well, one of the books that I'd read at that time was called Megatrends. And so there were a number of predictions that were made in that book. But in general, it was talking about how computers, software, information was going to be what would drive businesses in the future. And so I had ideas of how to automate personnel selection and decided with the encouragement of my case at that time to leave go start a business and pursue that. And so that company was called Measurement Systems Corporation. And I left um, selection research in 1983 and started Measurement Systems. And uh, I always look back, the day that I put in my notice that I was leaving was 4th of July weekend. So the 4th of July is always my independence day of going out on my own. You've never looked back? Nope. My son would be born a week after I left. Your first son. Yep. So my parents thought I was crazy, you know, had a good job, good paying job. I've got a new child and I'm giving it all up and going on my own. Did you have savings at least? I, when I started, unlike a lot of companies today, I had saved up $15,000, I believe. I borrowed $10,000 from my dad and I got a $15,000 SBA loan. So that was my capitalization. So Mike is in his early 20s in 1983, and he decides to leave his stable office job to start a software company. Not an easy decision when you're one week away from having your very first child, but he has a ton of conviction to start this company and 40K in capitalization. What he hadn't planned on, however, was his previous employer coming after him with legal action. Then. Gallup or your previous employer was upset that you had taken this idea and went off with it. Yeah, there were a number of people who had left and started businesses and competed with selection research. And it kind of came down to I was the straw that broke the camel's back. They felt like they needed to take a position with someone. Could have been any one of the previous people who'd left, but it happened to be me. And so Long story short, I ended up in the first trade secret case in Nebraska that dealt with this selection process. And so they took it all the way to the Nebraska Supreme Court. I was in court from 1984 to 1989. 
And so during that time period, I had temporary restraining orders, injunctions. Uh, in my opinion, the whole purpose of the litigation was to tire me out and basically cause me to go out of business. I went from 25 employees in 1984 to about four in 1986 and uh, wasn't paying myself. My wife was a teacher at the time. The three people that I retained were all software programmers. I'm not a programmer and so I needed to have them and so I would pay them and not pay myself. And then at that time, my wife was actually the bookkeeper. She'd always want to know whether or not we got any checks in the mail. And I would tell her, I'll let you know when I get some money. During that, I was out selling contracting programming services to generate cash. One of the clients of ours was the Lincoln Police Department, and we wrote a software program for them called Santa Cop. And so the whole premise of the software was to help them match kid request with a toy inventory. When that project got over with, I asked them if there was any other work that we could do for them. And one of two of the guys that had uh, worked with us on the Santa Cop project were white collar crime investigators. And they said that, well, we don't, the department doesn't have any money but if someone would develop a software program to automate pen register investigations, uh, we think that that's something that's really needed in the law enforcement market. And I told him at the time, I have no idea what a pen register is. I don't know what law enforcement people do with pen registers, but I'm all about making software that people need that doesn't seem to exist. And so that was the beginning of PenLink. So a quick one-to-one on what a pen register is. So a pen register is a wiretap type court order, but it's only for the metadata. So if you think about a phone bill, metadata are things like the date, the time, the duration of the call, the number dialed. So in order for a law enforcement agency to wiretap your phone and collect the data, they need what's called a pen register court order. If the case requires listening to the actual content of the conversation, they have to get a wiretap court order. A pen register is actually the piece of hardware that the law enforcement agency would use to tap into someone's telephone line, and then output from that would be data. So historically, the data was collected on a piece of cash register tape, and the investigators would take that receipt for their records. Well, you can see how this would get tedious after a while. So Mike thought, okay, if they can output this to printer tape, why can't they output it to a PC? So they made a software that would put all of that data into a PC, and then they provided a whole host of post-collective analytics like how many times does someone call this number, or what time of day do they frequently call, call patterns related to phone numbers, anything besides the content of the actual conversation. And this let large agencies like the Drug Enforcement Administration, who might use two to three to four different proprietary brands of pen register hardware, to be able to normalize all of this collected data. To prove their technology worked, they did a time study with the Lincoln Police Department, and they were able to do in one minute what took their old system 40 hours to do. PenLink was in business, and it started to grow rapidly. Were there a lot of standalone independent software companies at this point? No, no. I mean, so what ended up happening is um, not being in law enforcement, not having a military background, uh, they're very suspicious 
of a very young guy. <laughs> and it took a while for us to um, feel our way through it and gain trust. But I went to a trade show, I don't know when it was, maybe 87, and it was in Orlando, Florida, and we were the only company there that had software like that did what it did. And uh, I realized at that time that Penlink had a, a, a really good runway. You said that the, the court case ended around 89. Did that feel great to get past that? You know, the whole, the whole time period of going through it was horrible. Um, to be in court, not wanting to be there, not having any money. Um, I think by the time the litigation was over, I had uh, legal bills in excess of six figures. I couldn't pay. Um, I wore a mouth guard at night because I was cracking fillings in my teeth, grinding my teeth. So I would say it was a relief. Um, but I think more importantly, by then I had already knew that Penlink was going to be what I was going to focus on. And so I primarily kept running measurement systems because I had a handful of clients that wanted me to continue to help them. And so I continued to help what clients I had established, but during a large period of that litigation, I could not add new clients. So Penlink is, is booming now in the early 90s. Yep. When, when do you get to the point when you're like, okay, I'm ready to do some sort of exit strategy? At 48 years old, I got diagnosed with melanoma cancer. So owned 100% of the stock of Penlink at that time and realized that if I die, it's not worth half of what it is because a lot of the company at that point in time revolved around me. And so one of the things uh, in the situation where I walked away from the $40 million offer was the people there said, well, Penlink looks a lot like Mike Merman. And I'm like, well, what's that mean? And he said, well, you know, you're a very successful entrepreneur. You're running an entrepreneurial business, but you don't have the structure that a lot of more developed businesses have. And so at that time, with the melanoma diagnosis, I thought I need to start to figure out how I can get out of this what it is I put in, you know, in the wealth that I've created so that I can pass that along to my family. And so that's what got me focused on an exit strategy. So Mike set up an employee stock ownership plan or an ESOP to start making his way out of the business. An ESOP enables employees to own part or all of the company that they work for. Individual employees accumulate their shares in retirement accounts over time and then they can cash out those shares when they retire or leave. Mike also restructured and brought in a president and three VPs and set up incentives for them to earn out about 15% of the company's stock as well. And then in 2013, after selling the rest of his shares into the ESOP, Mike was ready for something new. So I had bought the land that became Glacial Till in 2003 and we were growing grapes and I was making homemade wine and I then ended up building which what would be now the original winery building, but I was still like a hobby winemaker. And so 
My oldest son wanted to know what I was going to do with this building or what my plans were, and I told him that when I exited Penlink, I wanted to get involved in a commercial winery. And so my son at that time graduated from college. He'd been, all three of my sons had been the ones that actually built the vineyard, planted the vines, put the trellises in. Uh, he wanted to pursue that. And so this would have been in 2008. I said, I can't do it because I'm still running Penlink, but I would be more than supportive financially um, to back you to help get this started. So the year's about 2008. Are people doing wine in Nebraska at this point? You know, really the late 90s, uh, there was a, a pretty big push um, for people to start growing grapes in Nebraska. And uh, James Arthur Vineyard would have been the first winery in the state. But I would go to what is the uh, Nebraska Grape Growers and Winery Association annual meeting slash conference and attend it, enter my homemade wine in their amateur wine competitions, go to classes, you know, network with people in that business. So I was starting to do that in the early 2000s. At this point, did you want to focus on wine or cider? So what happened was 2014, we had a really bad frost. In Nebraska, as a farm winery, you have to use 75% Nebraska-grown grapes. They're trying to promote grape growing in Nebraska. Well, if your grapes freeze, you can't make any wine. And so here we are, got three sons in a business. We've been growing our wine production, increasing our sales year over year. Um, but a number of things that we're realizing at that point in time. Wine sales is a tough business. If you go in and look in a liquor store, there's thousands of brands. What differentiates you from all the other ones on the shelf, let alone you're from Nebraska. <laughs> and uh, so my youngest son said, we should maybe think about getting some apple cider from Kimmel Orchards and making some hard cider. And he'd been doing some reading and said, you know, hard ciders right now in 2014, I think was growing like 11% a year. It was one of the fastest growing alcoholic beverage segments. And so we're like, why not? I mean, we can't make any, uh, can't make any wine. And actually, hard cider is a wine-based product. It's carbonated apple wine. What about starting both Penlink and Glacial Till in Nebraska specifically, do you think has helped you to grow? Well, I've always liked it here. So obviously, you know, if you're the person running the business, you want to be where you're happy. So, you know, to start with, I like Nebraska. Um, I think the quality of people that you can find here and the values that they have um, is really important and really important in building the company. And so I was very fortunate along the way to hire and retain very talented people. I mean, all of them were Nebraskans in the early days. You say that you like Nebraska. What do you like about being in Nebraska? Gravel roads. Nice, yeah. <laughs> 
Last year, Glacial Till did about 80,000 gallons of cider and 5,000 gallons of wine. Cider is a gluten-free alternative to beer, it's gender neutral, and it only accounts for 1% of alcohol consumed in the US versus 5% in Europe, so there's plenty of room for industry growth. Last year, Glacial Till was the number one cider in the Omaha region, even beating out Angry Orchard, and Mike plans to expand into new territories in the coming years. I'm JT Martin, and this has been a Grindstone production. Grindstone is one of the premier production and marketing firms here in Lincoln, offering everything you need to grow your business in 2020, from video and podcast production to social media management and media buying. You can learn more by visiting grindstoneagency.com. And I'd traveled all over the world. I'd been in wine countries in Chile and Argentina and California and everywhere and studied what they, they, they did. I uh, wanted to prove to the world that we could make world-class wine in Nebraska. 